From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. As the old saying goes, in the swamp, only gators get out alive. LSU learned that the hard way last weekend as Florida reestablished their home field advantage with a 27-19 win in front of a raucous sellout crowd. Now their challenge is to keep the momentum alive as they hit the road for the third time in the last four weeks. On today's show, we'll discuss the rebirth of the swamp and look ahead to Vanderbilt with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Plus, fresh off his role in Florida's latest game-changing trick play, Tight end Lucas Kroll shares his fascinating journey from Juco pitcher to major college football player. But first, the Gators' resilient performance capped off a fourth straight win that has many declaring that the program has returned to its former glory. So to open our roundtable with Scott and Chris, we posed the question percolating through the fan base. Are the Gators back? Well, they're back in the SEC hunt. We know that. Uh, that showdown against Georgia in a couple weeks, if they can take care of business against uh, Vanderbilt this week, I mean, that, that game moves large, uh, potentially between a, a couple of teams in the uh, you know top 10 or top 12. Uh, I think more than anything, Adam, the, the fan base is back. That's how I look at it. This is the first time in a long time that I sense that as we call them, Gator Nation, is really excited about this football team and what a swing it's been over the last month. It was the group that was kind of down in the dumps after the Kentucky loss. Four wins later, that crowd, the atmosphere was as good as I've seen in a long time. And I think this team deserves it. I mean, they, they really responded well under Dan Mullen. Uh, as he likes to say, they really bought into to what his system is. And you can see the growth each week. There's still areas to improve on. That was what Mullen stressed this week, you know, in his kind of even kill approach. He liked a lot of things that they did against LSU, the toughness, the resiliency, but he also knows that the offense still isn't as consistent as it needs to be. The offensive line still is uh, up and down. I, I just think, you know, they got kind of hit in the mouth on that opening drive by LSU. The, the defense wasn't that great at the start, but yet they found a way to win. I think that's what he's focusing on. They're building on. But are they back? They're back to, what, number 14? That's as good as sport has been in quite a while. So they're certainly trending in the right direction. This time uh, last year, I believe Florida was 3-0 and in SEC play. And uh, people were talking pretty enthusiastically about where the team was, given that it, it looked so poorly in the uh, in the opener against against Michigan. So you fast forward that there's no comparison to the two vibes. What you're seeing now, I think, Adam, is this is a team that has uh, forged itself something of an identity, whereas the last couple of years that just hasn't been the case. There hasn't been an identity at all with this team. I think what the, what this team is becoming, it's it's an average offense, but it's an offense that is uh, has something of a plan as far as to run the football and try to be able to run the football in the fourth quarter. And I think we saw that the other day. They're still 87th nationally in total offense, 10th in the SEC. That's 
breakfast is a lot better than 116th or wherever the Gators were the last couple of years, right around that. But the the start of the identity is defense and forcing turnovers, where Florida is one of the best in the country at that. They're third in the country in sacks, so they pressure the quarterback. The buy-in and the belief and the rejuvenation of the fan base, uh, the rejuvenation of the swamp, um, all that plays into it. And uh, I'm sure it's something that we'll talk about in a few minutes, but that that was a very fun atmosphere the other night in the building. And it's something obviously that the Gators can build on and they're building on as we speak. And again, speaking to what Scott mentioned, uh, Dan Mullen will be the first to say they're far from perfect. And uh, he knows there's work to do, but who wouldn't be at least encouraged about the direction where things are heading right now, because every week's been better than the week before. And uh, go to, you go on the road against Tennessee and, and that was supposed to be a measuring stick of where two so-called bottom feeders from a year ago were, where Florida, you know, destroys them. If Florida is significantly better than Tennessee, that's what should have happened, even on the road. Mississippi State, huge win against a ranked opponent on the road, a team that turns around and, and beats Auburn the following week. So uh, maybe Mississippi, Mississippi State's better than we thought they were um, when the Gators left Starkville with a win. Then you come home against fifth-ranked uh, LSU and win a game like that. Now, if you are who you think you are and you are on a uh, trending upward and you go to Vanderbilt and you do what you're supposed to do against a Vanderbilt team that is certainly struggling, though they did uh, give Notre Dame all they could handle a few weeks ago. But uh, in their two SEC games, uh, they've been manhandled by both South Carolina and Georgia. So we'll see where this goes from here. The rejuvenation of the Swamp was a big storyline going into the weekend and certainly leaving the weekend. Uh, You guys have been to a lot of big games in there. I'm curious what impact do you think that environment, that crowd had on the game and this team trying to trend back the right direction? I thought it had a huge impact. I mean, you can just tell by uh, what the players and what Mullen said afterward about the crowd. I mean, it's been rare in recent years that there's that much discussion from the team about the impact of the crowd after a game. Uh, if you were in there in the fourth quarter when Brad Stewart picked that pass off, that's as loud as I've heard the swamp in many years. And there's probably only a couple of times where, you know, my memory that I would think it would be, have been louder or that loud. You know, Dan Mullen, he set that tone. If you, you know, coming out of that tunnel, uh, he was bouncing up and down there before they ever ran on the field, just trying to, you know, get the place rocking and, and he spoke earlier in the week about creating that environment, and they followed suit because uh, they saw him doing it. There was a point there in the second half on the sideline where he did it again. And then afterward, he was, he's running around the field, you know, high-fiving fans and stuff. So it was something that you could tell they obviously uh, appreciated. The fans helped out. Uh, Felipe Frank said yesterday there were times in the second half when he was on the headset while the defense was on the field. He couldn't even hear Brian Johnson, the quarterback's coach, on the on the uh, headset as they were trying to discuss, you know, what the strategy was. So it was a, it was a great environment. It's kind of what we all have seen the swamp, remember the swamp as, and it definitely uh, returned uh, on Saturday. I'm sure the fans that were watching it on TV got the sense. You know, I don't think he had to be there to sense what a difference it was. Mullen talked the previous week about how he hate he helped uh, create. The environment at Mississippi State, certainly something that Scott and I were there, and we were certainly impressed with how loud they were. The student section getting there a couple hours before and filling that one end zone. Um, I think uh, if there was anything that you could be critical about, I mean, still the students are late arriving, and there were still quite a few of uh, empty seats, I'd say, well into the first quarter. 
uh, up in that student section, the high, higher up you got. But uh, the people that were there were loud. And as, after, it filled, after it filled in, there was no doubt uh, about the environment. And like Scott said, the Brad Stewart uh, interception, um, the closest thing I can think about in recent years would have been, I'm not even going to say the Tennessee game last year because I don't know that the stadium was full last year on that uh, Hail Mary uh, Felipe Franks pass. You're going to say like, Will Greer to Antonio Callaway, aren't you? Yeah, that or that or the Ole Miss game. Hmm. And the Ole Miss was number three when they came in. Uh, those were back-to-back weeks in 2015, and that's what they were shooting for, and certainly they, they got that if, if they did not exceed it because to beat a team like LSU, it was really cool. And I think Scott sent out a tweet. He was on campus early. He said he hadn't seen – the campus like that three hours for a kickoff in a long time. And I certainly have to agree with them on that point. You guys mentioned the offense earlier and, and obviously it, it's still not a world beater by any stretch, but they do keep finding ways to piece things together week after week. It really kind of in different forms this time around, it was really, really tough running, especially late from Jordan Scarlett and Michael P Ryan. Can you just talk about the latest outing for the offense and the importance of those two running backs in the equation? Well, that's the one area where, you know, with the inconsistent offense that Dan Mullins referred to, I mean, if they're not getting something in the ground game, they're going to be really in trouble because then Felipe Franks has to do it, or at least try to do it. And we've seen how that plays out. It's got to be pretty balanced. Uh, I think, what, they had 215 yards rushing against, I think, the third-ranked uh, rushing defense in the country coming in. Uh, so they got the, they got the job done on the ground. They mixed in. Obviously, another key trick play with the uh, pass, Lucas Kroll to Felipe Franks. And that's going to have to be, I think, the M.O. moving forward, Adam. I mean, this team, I still don't think Felipe Franks is at a point where, you know, he's going to go out there and throw 35 or 40 passes. I don't think that's what Dan Mullen wants. I mean, I think they they want a balance, and they've been using really three backs. They they only used two this past week. I don't if I don't. I don't recall Damian Pierce getting much action. It was mostly with Michael Piron and Jordan Scarlett, both of those guys. And then Felipe had a couple of runs as well. So I, I think that's just what we're going to see if the Gators continue on this path. I think that's what they have to do. They're going to have to run the ball uh, and help out Franks and let them pick spots for him to uh, you know execute what they want to with a high chance for success. Yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll piggyback on that last thing you said. Pick spots, and you can pick certainly pick at the offense for what it can't do. But LSU gut punched the Gators to start the fourth quarter with a four play eighty yard drive. With uh, Nick Prosette had a seventy nine yards on that on that drive. With I think with a thirty one yard run and a forty eight yard run or something like that, and then scored mm-hmm. on the touchdown. What does Florida do? They get the ball back with just over eleven minutes to go. They go uh, seventy five yards in nine plays. And it's just a really good mix of things that they were able to do at that time for whatever reason. And I, and you got to credit Dan Mullen for really mixing it up. There was a 26 yard completion, a great catch by uh, Van Jefferson up the sidelines. Then there was a run by P Ryan. I think it was 17 yards. And I think Frank's had a little keeper that was 10 or 12 yards. And then came the, uh, came the, 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 the chicanery, if you will, with the, with the Lucas Kroll uh, throwback. I, when's the last time you saw a left handed pass that, was that exciting in the swamp, right? <laughs> it had been a, certainly a while, but that was a 15-yard play down the two. So it was a really good mix. So Dan, Dan Mullen, I think, has a pulse of what this unit can and can't do and certainly uh, called a masterful drive that gave the Gators the uh, the lead back at a very critical time where there could have been a lot of nervous people if that had been one of those three and outs because I believe the three possessions before that had been three and outs. And so uh, 
very timely. You know, give Felipe Franks credit. He was the he was the orchestrator of that drive and certainly give Dan Mullen credit for pushing the right buttons um, when they had to to retake that lead. And and finally, of course, give the uh, defense credit because there were three possessions after that. One one ended in a punt. One ended in an interception and another one ended in an interception. So uh, it was just a, a total team effort all around and just to be commended all the way around. I got one follow-up on that, Chris. You remember this yesterday. Dan Mullen actually kind of pointed the finger at himself a little bit about those three drives that ended in punt. He said he got a little conservative there. And uh, you don't often hear a coach say that. So I think there's also a, a part of uh, Dan Mullen still trying to get a true grasp on the offense of identity. He did finally pull out a great call with the trick play. But again, there was those three drives that didn't result in anything, and it was one of those defensive battles. And he said, "Look, you know, I gotta do, I gotta be more consistent in my play call if I'm gonna call out the, the offense for not, uh, needing to be more consistent." Yeah, and I thought there was a, also a play on uh, when Florida had a chance to really take the clock down. They threw a second down pass that really wasn't close that stopped the clock and was and really aided the uh, the LSU. And I think. And I think then there was a, a, a bonehead uh, penalty, uh, unfortunately, like that ended up being an offset. I think Dre Massey was the culprit for, for Florida, but uh, um, they had a chance to get a first down. So, so there was some stuff that, that went against them late that got kind of got lost in the shuffle, but certainly ended up being masked by the defense. And I mentioned last week about the importance of Tommy Townsend. Mm-hmm. After that little incomplete pass, after that uh, offsetting and unsportsmanlike uh, penalty, guy just unloaded a 61-yard rocket to the LSU 5 that the Gators covered well, only a 7-yard return. So LSU had to start on the 12, and I believe uh, on 3rd and 4, it was that uh, interception by Brad Stewart. So all three phases of the game played into it in the fourth quarter, and that's a credit to the coach and a credit to the team believing in itself at that time. Just for you guys, I mean, you've seen a lot over the years. How wild has this last 30 days been in terms of just a complete tonal shift in expectation and and really in, in execution. Mullen got a few questions about that, and so did the players in the month in the press conference about the, the whole social media aspect. If athletes let their uh, uh, biorhythms be you know dictated by by social media, it, they'd be jumping off twenty story buildings um, <laughs> weekly. I mean, I, I think he made, he made the reference. He goes, you know, they're either patting you on the back or six, six inches below, they're kicking you in your butt. So um, try not to get too high or too low and. That's the message that he's kind of sent because you're you're right. I mean, after the loss to Kentucky, this the season was in the toilet. I think uh, Kentucky has certainly uh, shown in the five weeks since that they're a they're a team to be reckoned with. Um, having said that, Florida sits even with them right now in the standings. Uh, they went to Texas A&M, played a hell of a game, but ended up losing in overtime on a heartbreaker for them. Um, they but they're on pace for uh, uh, for Kentucky football will be one for the ages. Fascinating stat, by the way, from that Kentucky A and M game. Kentucky did not run a play from scrimmage beyond the fifty yard line until overtime. They scored fourteen points in regulation, and it was on a sixty something yard run and a fumble return for a touchdown. They did not snap the ball in A and M territory until overtime. Just it really interesting you could go a whole game, get to overtime and never run a play from the opposite side of the 50. And technically they didn't they didn't drive they wouldn't have driven the ball into the territory cuz they started there by overtime rules, right? Right, exa- yeah, exactly. I I thought that was so interesting when I saw that. But please continue, continue. Yeah, so you can't get all caught up in in what people are saying. 
you just got to do your job and get better at practice. And uh, uh, the players that followed Mullen, uh, Felipe Franks, Josh Hammond, echoed what he said in terms of, you know, it's back to work. Whatever you do to this point doesn't mean anything if you turn around and go lay an egg at Vanderbilt. So uh, uh, build on it. And if uh, the game against Georgia in a couple weeks is, is going to mean and have the kind of stakes that uh, that people are maybe looking toward, you got to do what you got to do in Nashville this weekend. And it, it looks easier on paper than, than it is. So uh, and, and I do think that the coaches and the players have, have a grasp on that. Well, Adam, since you often say when you ask Chris or I a question that we've seen a lot, meaning that we've been around the block. <laughs> I can tell you I've talked to a lot of coaches over the years, and they'll tell you that after a win like Saturday, these are the most difficult weeks that coaches have because they have to grind extra hard to keep the players focused, to keep their attention. And, and it's just not, it's just human uh, nature. I mean, it was a, a very emotional win, the biggest win of, of any player on this team's college career. And now they're going to Vanderbilt, which traditionally is, is not the most exciting game on the roster. It's going to be an early start. The crowd's going to be nothing like it was on Saturday in the Swamp. So these coaches are, you know, they're having to, uh, having to work extra hard this week just to keep the players in line and to keep them focused on the task at hand. And I, I think it'll be fine talent wise, but you got to go up there and do it. And, and that's the mission right now, because if you go up there and it doesn't work out, then, you know, all this excitement that we're talking about kind of fades. And, and you look back in what's happened in recent history, I think. You got to go back to 2015 when they started six and zero. That's the last time you've had the kind of buzz around the program. And of course, we all know what happened the next week uh, with the real Greer suspension and how that kind of really played out over the next two and a half, three years to where we are now. It's been a program that had to reboot. Obviously, I think they're in a lot better circumstances now in a lot of ways, long term. But it is a, a they do have to stay focused this week and go up and take care of business at Vanderbilt. So in terms of that challenge at Vanderbilt, you know, traditionally they're a, a stout defense under Derek Mason and they're not that much offensively. But this year that, that equation is is somewhat flipped on its head, isn't that right? Yeah, I mean Kyle Shermer is one of the better quarterbacks in the in the Southeastern Conference this season. He's thrown fourteen hundred yards, nine touchdowns, four interceptions. They've had trouble scoring in the red zone which is a, a, could be a positive for the Gators at times. But one thing I will say is Ralph Webb's not there anymore, and the guy who went to a high school here in Gainesville had, had some pretty good games <laughs> against Florida yeah. the last few years, including I think he went over 100 yards twice against Florida during his four seasons. But he's not there anymore, and they don't really have a go-to tailback. But they do have a fellow by the name of Kayshawn Vaughn, who's averaging almost seven yards a carry. So, um, wide receiver uh, Kalijah uh, Lipscomb leads the uh, conference in receptions with 45. So they have some guys who can do some damage, but uh, those strengths play into, of course, Florida's strengths, which is defense, and especially when it comes to stopping the pass, which Florida right now ranks uh, first in the in the conference against defending the pass. So favorable matchups for Florida, but of course you still got to go out and execute. Let's move on to this week's PAT, which I, I want to make about rowdiness and rowdiness can take a lot of forms at a sporting event it, it could be like that circus out in las vegas at the ufc fight we had people fighting in the stands and uh, almost uh, malice at the palace levels going on out there or it could be like it was in the swamp just an extremely loud game in a more traditional sense 
uh, that people remember for a long time. So I'm curious for you guys, as we dig into that wealth of experience, what is the <laughs> rowdiest sporting event that you've ever been to? I'll stick with the gridiron, I guess. I mean, I'll go back to when I went to a game as a fan first, and uh, I was actually in um, RFK Stadium the year the Redskins beat the Cowboys to go to the NFC cha- or in the NFC Championship game to go to their first Super Bowl. Uh, there was a play, I think, where uh, Dexter Manley just uh, almost beheaded uh, Danny White on a on a play. Or oh, no, it, was, it might have been Harry Hugaboom actually. And the ball like bounced in the air and Green came down with a defensive tackle and rumbled in the end zone to pretty much ice that one, put him up by two touchdowns. And, you know, in old RFK Stadium, they said, you know, you've probably seen some of the old highlights of the, the seats that would bounce up and down. And so I was in the middle of that. But um, in terms of covering games, I got to go with two and both of them at the expense of the Gators. I was at Baton Rouge when Florida had won 25 straight SEC games and um, had to go into Death Valley in 1997, and they were number one in the country, and uh, Doug Johnson threw four picks, and they emptied the stadium. They won 28-21, and they tore the goalpost down. It was maniacal, and then a year later, Tennessee had lost those five straight games to the Gators, four of them with Peyton Manning, and Colin Scooper missed that field goal. I was up in the press box, and it was incl- they'd redone everything. There were 108,000 people there, and they had redone everything to make it the biggest stadium in that they had a war going on with Michigan, which stadium was bigger. And uh, Collins Cooper misses that field goal uh, in overtime, and I'm much like it was at Texas A&M, uh, you could feel you could feel the the, the press box sway. Hmm. And of course, the fans emptied on the field, tore the goalpost down, and I think someone got hit in the head with a goalpost, if I'm not mistaken. But Tennessee, of course, went on to win the national championship, and those were two uh, pretty crazy scenes, football scenes that I was. I guess, lucky enough to attend and see. And uh, I wouldn't put where Florida was uh, and where the swamp was the other night in either of those or, or any of those three places. But maybe the Gators are climbing that, climbing back in that direction. But those are those are certainly memorable ones for me. I think for me, I'll start with baseball in a series, which I've referenced, I think, before that 03 Yankees-Red Sox, which is fitting because they're playing right now in the, in the playoffs. But this was 15 years ago. And game three... American League Championship Series, Fenway Park. You guys have seen this where Pedro throws down Don Zimmer. <laughs> One of the most surreal scenes of any event I've covered. There was some uh, back and forth between the teams that day, Pedro and Sheffield and Posada. Just, they, they didn't like each other. It was a heightened moment. There was a fans fighting some Yankees relievers out in the dugout to see a, uh, one of the game's great pitchers toss a 75 year old man running out into the ground in Fenway Park. <laughs> that was just, you just don't see that very often. Zimmer needed to toughen up on that, man. <laughs> to let himself be thrown around like that, that was embarrassing. Yeah, it was. It was just, it led to uh, his uh, end of his Yankee tenure because him and George had a fallout and he ended up with the Rays. But yeah, that moment, I'll throw a Gator moment in here. It's actually a basketball one. And this was when I was in Tallahassee, covering Florida State. But when the Gators were uh, in those championship runs, they actually lost the regular season game over in Tallahassee. So I, mm-hmm. it was so big for the Seminoles that they, they actually stormed the court. And what I remember most about it is, boy, they gave Joe Kim Noah a lot that night. And so the Gators lose, and all of a sudden, some dude jumps on the scores table where I was working and, and cracked my laptop because he stepped right on it. Oh, man. So, so yeah, that that was one that sticks out. But those two moments uh, just you know stick to me, and 
I'm like, Chris, uh, I thought what happened Saturday night in the swamp was, it was definitely festive. It was fun. But, you know, I don't know, to be honest with you, has has the crowd ever rushed the field at the swamp? Not to my knowledge. Well, no, but, uh, Jeremy Foley, I remember in, um, in 1995, Florida was 10-0 and and playing Florida State at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, people started handing out flyers all around the campus that said, storm the field if we win. And Florida jumped all over that and put out statement, did a video, if I'm not mistaken, saying this this is not a good idea. You know, we're not doing this. And I think he was one of the first ones to well before the SEC uh, came up with the uh, the fine for fans storming the field. Uh, for safety reasons, they were very proactive on that front. And mm. I can't remember it ever happening here. <clears throat> it certainly didn't during the Spurrier era, namely because the, the, the administration wasn't going to let it happen. And what I would say is to that guy, I hope that a guy who jumped on your laptop and cracked <laughs> it, you should have taken that guy and thrown him around like Pedro threw around Don Zimmer. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me. If I, I would like to have because he, he spoiled my night because I, I I had to run back to her office and write instead of writing at the stadium. Oh, but okay, yeah, that was that was a crazy night. To my knowledge, Florida and Alabama are the only two SEC football stadiums that have never been rushed before. The fans have never rushed the field at Florida or Alabama. So interesting note there. My my rowdy moment I give you before we go here. It it is a swamp moment. The loudest environment I've ever been in was. The moment right after Jarvis Moss blocked the field goal in 06 was, uh, was Bedlam, at least where I was in the student section back at that time. So that's, that's my Gator entry into the proceedings. It's a positive Gator entry to counteract the, uh, the, the two negative ones that, that Chris presented to us. Uh, but that's okay. <laughs> that's why we've, we've got to have balance on here. That's why, that's why we've got to have balance. So. I think I've seen footage of that. I mean, you actually tried to storm the field and they arrested you. I was knocked out by one of the cops on the horses. Just the horse just <laughs> leveled me. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm sure it's on, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Anyway, there probably won't be any, uh, field storming in Nashville this weekend, but probably some good music and some, some good drinks as well, as is the case up there. So, uh, make sure to check out Chris and Scott, all their content on FloridaGators.com and you can follow them on Twitter as well at Gators Scott at Gators Chris. Gentlemen, thank you so much as always. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. It takes an incredible amount of versatility and talent to be a multi-sport athlete at the collegiate level, but it also creates conflict. That's because most coaches want players full focus year-round, so that means they have to make a decision. Lucas Kroll has been playing baseball and football at a high level his whole life, and choosing which sports are prioritized in recent years has taken him on quite the journey. We spoke to the lefty about his interesting path and that perfect strike he delivered to Felipe Franks in the fourth quarter. But we began by finding out what it was like for a JUCO transfer to compete in an environment like the Swamp last Saturday. (laughs) Yeah, um, you know, especially coming from a junior college and let alone, you know, playing baseball, you know, the atmosphere and the just the whole environment and the vibe that you get is just completely different. It's nothing like playing in the swamp before the 90,000 against LSU and, and, you know, the, the clock's ticking down and, you know, you're behind and, and you got to make a big play, you know, that's uh there's, you just can't, you can't describe that feeling and you can't, can't compare it to anything else. It's uh it's, it's amazing. It's, it's heart racing. It's, it's everything you, you dream about as a kid wanting to do and, and, doing in, the, in that environment it's, it's awesome given how intense the game was how back and forth it was 
How do you manage emotions over the course of the day like that when there are just so many ups and downs that you, you have to deal with? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, especially, you know, a lot of it kind of starts with your mental preparation before the game, you know, even begins, you know, Coach Coach Mullen really talked about um, Friday night when we're at the hotel, you know, at dinner, just talking about, you know, making sure we're relaxed and, and not thinking about the game and, and you know, make sure we're, we're holding and saving all our energy because he said, you know, if you guys all get hyped up now for the game, that's not even for another, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 hours. He's like, you're going to sit here and you're going to, you're going to overthink it. You're going to get, you know, burnt out. You're going to be tired before the game's even starting. So that was really the biggest thing was that mental preparation before the game even occurred was just trying to, watch other football games and and not think about you know the game that we have and and just relax and so we can hold it all in and then boom when we you know step in that step in that the stadium it's that's when everything just flips and yeah like you know uh like you're asking you know what's it like to with the emotions throughout the whole game it's definitely uh different than any kind of other emotion you can have you know especially in the game you know Mm -hmm. you never want to have a roller coaster of uh, emotions because that's just that just shows you're not mentally stable because you can't, you know, you can't, oh, we, we're down now, everyone gets down, oh, we're up, everybody gets up. You know, you have to stay, at, you know, you have to stay at a certain level the whole time. And, you know, we all, we, we knew it was going to be back and forth the whole game. We knew, you know, it was going to come down to the wire. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, and we I think we did, the, did a great job of keeping our emotions high, keeping our mentality high and our intensity high. I want to talk about the play. And I know you've been asked about it a lot in the last few <laughs> days. We're going to talk about it a little more here. I'm, I'm curious – when did you first start working on that fake jet sweep throwback? And when did you think it was going to be called in the game? Did you have any idea? Yeah, so we had been we had been working that play, I'd say, about oh three, I'd say three, four weeks now. And so, you know, we'd all we'd run it in our uh, in our sets and our uh, first down, third down series and, and coach had, you know, it's oiled up, it's in the game plan. So that's when I knew, okay, you know, this is the week that there's a possibility. Well it was actually there was a chance it could have been played or it could have been used against Mississippi State and we ended up, you know, not needing it or we didn't have, you know, the right drive for it and and so we ended up saving it for this one. So I knew, you know, coming in this week, as a good, you know, there's a high chance that this this uh, could be the play, that, or this could be the game we're going to use this play in. And, uh, and sure enough, it was. And and like I said in, a, in in another interview, you know, that play was actually supposed to be called a little bit earlier. And you know, we just had a just didn't have the right timing at the time. And I think we saved it for the perfect uh, for the perfect series. Now you made a, a heck of a throw on a day another famous lefty was being honored. Uh, right. Can you talk about? what Tim Tebow shared with the team before and also after the game and, and what it meant to you and the rest of the guys. It was awesome having the, the 2008 team back here and having them back and having them be a part of um, our pregame and during the game was a huge game changer as well, just having them be able to talk to us. And this is, you know, this is what Gator standard is about. This is what the Gator standard is. You know, they said it and, you know, we're, we're bringing it back. And, you know, that was really kind of what, you know, when, when Tim Tebow came in and started talking to us, you know, his big thing was, you know, we just need to go out there and, and, you know, not let go of the rope. You know, we got a rope we're holding on, we're holding on. And, and you know, someone's going to let go eventually. It's a tug of war at all times. And he's like, you know, you can't flinch, you know. And when you're getting punched, you know, if you flinch, you're, you're going to lose in any in any fight, you know. And that's what football is. It's always a fight. And, and whoever flinches is who's going to lose. And, you know, we never flinched. The whole game we didn't flinch. And, um, and that's kind of really the message he was kind of sharing with us and, and, you know, even at the end, he was, just, you know, just talking about he was how, how proud he was to be a Florida Gator and call himself a Florida Gator. And, and you know, for us, it was just it always means a lot to hear, you know, and, and, and listen to what he has to say. 
We'll get back to football in just a second, but I want to turn things back a little bit and talk about you and, and where you came from. So can you tell us a little bit about your family and where you grew up? Yeah, so I uh, was born in uh, Pennsylvania, lived there for, you know, two years. So, you know, obviously I have no remembrance of that. But uh, then we moved to uh, Allen, Texas and lived there for about six years. And my dad's job uh, got transferred up to Kansas City. And so I grew up basically in Kansas City my whole life. And uh, my mom played at, the, uh, at Kansas State University. She was an All-American basketball player there, mm. was the score leader for several uh, several years. Uh, my dad played football at Kansas State as well. So, um, you know, just having them as family or having them as my parents, you know, I couldn't ask for a better, you know, environment to live in. You know, they're, they've supported me in everything I've done. They've raised me right. You know, they've just been they've been the best you could, you could ask for. And, and so, you know, yeah, growing up in Kansas, you know, I think it's funny because everyone's like, oh, well, you know, there's nothing in Kansas. And I'm like, well, you know, that's western Kansas. You know, that's more out there. <laughs> you know, I lived in I lived in the city. So. Um, I'm more of a, a, a more of a city boy, but yeah. So I grew up in Kansas City. Uh, went to Mill Valley High School, uh, and that's you know where I played football and baseball. And you know, kind of going through high school, everyone kind of asked, "Well, what's your favorite sport?" And I was like, you know, it always depended, you know, what what season I was in. You know, if it was football season, I was like, I love football. If it's baseball season, you know, I love baseball. And then kind of my junior years, kind of when things just started really skyrocketing in baseball world. And, you know, a lot of kind of like a lot of hype had kind of kind of started coming around my name and and all this lefties, you know, getting, you know, his velocities getting up here. And then so I started getting heavily recruited for baseball as, you know, a junior and uh, ended up committing by the end of my junior year to University of Arkansas. And then going into football season, my you know head coach came up to me for football and was like, hey, you know, there's you know some schools asking about you for football. But, you know, I know you're committed for baseball. What do you want me to say? And I was like, honestly, I was like, I think I'm just going to, you know, I want to stay to my commitment. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, feel like I'm, you know, turning on Arkansas or anything. So I'm just going to, you know, not talk to them. Like, he's like, OK. So, you know, went into football season and honestly had the best career of my life. My That season, you know, my senior season, I had 14 touchdowns, I had 900 yards. I had we won a state championship. So it was like the best way you could kind of think about going out um of a you know a career and I was like wow this is like really it and honestly uh kind of really never looked back at the time it was uh I was and then when senior year was over I went out to California played in a baseball summer league out there got ready for Arkansas you know when season hit um you know coaches never really explained what my role was it was kind of more we were you know we we're seeing how you know the season was gonna go kind of thing and never really got my opportunity so you know I decided you know, I'm going to go ahead and redshirt. So I kind of self-redshirted. I was like, listen, coach, if I'm not going to get X amount of innings, I'd rather redshirt. And, you know, they all agree, like, you know, no reason to burn a year. So I ended up redshirting and, you know, by, by season was over. I was like, you know, kind of what, what's the plan for me coming in this fall? You know, what's the plan for me on the team next year? I was like, you know, my, my goal is I'd like to be a starter, you know, and, you know, any kid would. And mm -hmm. like, you know, we don't really, you know, we have a lot of guys arms returning you know we don't really see you as a starter we're seeing you kind of more in the bullpen for us you know kind of back of the bullpen and I was like well you know for what I want to do in my career I don't really see that for say being the best decision I think I need to go to a junior college get more innings you know they there was a mutual agreement they agreed it was best for me and so you know I decided to part ways I went to Jefferson College and that's where you know I went for my JUCO just I think 
one of the best coaches, you know, you could ask for. And, um, you know, my head coach, Pat Evers, he was just someone that he wasn't someone that I just called a coach, but I would, you know, I'd consider him such a friend now, you know, I still talk to him today. And, and so, you know, he had really, you know, brought me in and was like, listen, you know, you're going to come here. You're going to, you know, be a guy for us. You're going to figure it out and this and that. Cause you know, I had struggled throwing strikes. I could always throw really hard just in a game. I, you know, I'd struggle with my command and, and so I get there and we go on with the fall. The fall's just kind of okay. I'm still, you know, struggling with my command and I'd been working with a, uh, and that was another reason I had went there because they had let me uh, work in this facility in St. Louis that had been really good with pitchers and they're great with pitchers. Uh, they're called P3 out of uh, St. Louis. And so I'd been working with them and they had actually been doing great with, I mean, I've been seeing drastic changes through the weeks, but, you know, it was fall ball, so I couldn't really see a huge difference. So, you know, off season came, really got into that facility and then got to work with them and, uh, and really just started seeing a tremendous change. And, you know, my command was there, my velocity was up and, you know, all this hype was built. And, and I think I kind of took that hype and just kind of let it, you know, dissolve almost because I was like, listen, you know, we got the season coming up. I can't let this be a factor. And, and so I try to, you know, block it out as much as I could. And, and you know, it was my first start. I was on the mound and it just, you know, I walked the first guy and I was like, oh man, like I kind of just had it in, in my head, like, oh, like here we go again kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And then just kind of, just kind of snowballed on me. And then it's just, it's so frustrating in, in, in the game of baseball when you work so hard at something and you can't see that, you know, you can't get that success out of it. It's just, it's different with baseball. It's something about it that it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's so, it's so, uh, so frustrating. It was so frustrating for me. So, you know, I just kind of told myself like, you know, and I, I don't know if this is really for me anymore. I did all this, I did this, you know, it's just, it's, it's not been working. And, and so, but of course I was like, listen, I'm going to play out the rest of the season. But after that, after those, I think my first two games, I was like, you know what, I'm going to call my high school coach and, and let him know I want to come back and play football. And so I had reached out to my high school coach. I was like, hey, Coach Appleby. I was like, you know, here's my situation. Here's what's happening. You know, I was wondering, is there any way I could come back and play football? And he was like, oh, man. He's like, I have, he's like, I have no idea. He's like, I've never dealt with a situation like this. Hmm. You know, it's such a unique situation. He's like, uh, let me call around those schools that, you know, were, were really interested in highly, you know, wanted you at a high school. So, you know, he did that. He called them. And there was like Kansas State, Iowa State, kind of more local schools that had been interested in me. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, like we'd love to have him. Um, obviously, he hasn't played in a couple of years. So it kind of all started as preferred walk-ons. Like, and I was like, well, I kind of assumed that's how it would have been. Like, I'm not expecting anyone to offer me a scholarship, you know, not playing in three years. And then SMU out of Dallas, Texas, actually uh, was the first school to call and offer. It kind of just it was another snowball effect of, Oh well, then we need to offer them, and then we need oh the so and kind of, and then I started going on my official visits and came to Florida, and you know when I got here, I was like this is this is where I need to be, you know, and obviously I went on the other visits to make sure this is where I needed to be, and at the same time I had to sit there and still because I had a team to commit to, I had my coaches, I had my my teammates and my brothers at my junior college to commit to, so I was like listen like. I'm playing the rest of this season. I'm doing everything I can for this team. And, and they were all, they all respected me too. They understood my situation. They, you know, they're, they're always there for me. And, um, and so we actually made it all the way to the junior, uh, junior college world series, which is awesome too. Hmm. And the season's over and, uh, and I get a call. I'm like, Hey, you know, from my coach, like, he's like, Hey, you're about to get drafted. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, I think he's like, I think you're about to get drafted. And, uh, it was actually supposed to be the Baltimore Orioles were supposed to draft me. 
but um, it actually turned out the uh, San Francisco Giants snagged me before then. So they they drafted me in the 34th round, and I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, it's a it's gonna be really hard to do that. You know, I think you know from a signing bonus wise, I you know I would have wanted a lot of money to say no to having an opportunity to go back and play football. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think the Giants knew that too. But you know, they're like, we're gonna take a chance, draft them, and see if we can work something out. Never got to that stage on that, but um, but yeah. So then after that, I uh, decided you know Florida is where I wanted to be, and. No, I've never looked back and never will. Earlier this week, Dan Mullen compared you to Liam Neeson in Taken. He said you have a particular set of skills that make you very dangerous. Uh, have you seen Taken, and, and what did you think about that comparison? <laughs> yeah, yes, I have seen the movie. And, um, yeah, I, when, I had, when I watched the, uh, the interview um, with Coach Mullen, I had listened and I was like, did he just, he just say that? Like, I was like, <laughs> I started laughing and I was like, that's funny. I was like, um, no, I just, I thought it was a very uh, nice gesture. Um, and yeah, I just, it, you know, it, you know, I, I got a lot of work to do. And, uh, and so, no, I, I, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a cool thing to hear your coach say about you, but you know, from, from my standpoint is, you know, it's just, it's another word, but I got, I got a lot of stuff I got to get better at and, and work on. Where does Taken rank among your favorite action movies? What are your favorite oh, action movies? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, I love the Expendables series. Okay. Uh, I love – no, I do. I do really, really much enjoy watching the Taken series. Those are great, too. Anything that, you know, gets your blood pumping, those are, those are the good ones. A couple final questions for you. There's so much hype around the team now in this moment because of what's happened the last month. What message are the coaches really pushing about handling all the success that is suddenly coming your guys' way? You know, kind of a big thing we've been talking about is just staying true to us and who we are. Coach kind of brought in the whole – you know, you need to, you know, give relentless effort. And, you know, that's something that we bought into when the, when the first kick started, uh, when the first kickoff started and, you know, we hadn't looked back and, you know, we had that, you know, loss to Kentucky, but that was something that, you know, that made us grow even more. That made us push ourselves even more. And, and that's something that each week, you, you know, if you were out at our practices, you'd see each week, you know, just the difference of intensity and, and the mindset of practices that we kind of play with, because, you know, that's something that coach coach uh, always says is you want to make practice harder than the games. And, and that's something that we have to continue to do. And, and we know that, you know, we can't have a bad day again because if you have a bad day, then that's going to end up turning into a loss, you know, for, for uh, where we're at. And, and that's the thing is now, you know, us, you know, being so successful right now, you know, everyone's got a target for Florida. Everyone's got a target on our. We got a target on our back, and and we know we gotta we gotta bring it every week. We gotta be be uh, more physical, more. Uh, we gotta strain more. We gotta you know pretty, just give way more relentless effort at all times through practice, through film studies, uh, through preparation, through you know working out, through eating right, through getting you know sleep, getting schoolwork done, just taking care of the business at hand and. Uh, you know, like Coach always says, giving relentless effort. At the end of the day, if you can't give relentless effort, then you're you're not going to fit in well here because everyone everyone wants a piece of the pie, and you got to give it all. Final thing for you, I won't ask you what they are because I know you can't tell me that. But just in general, how many more trick plays do you guys have cooked up that we may have a chance to see this year? You know, I, I'm going to have to say no comment on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're playing coy with the trick plays. I, I see that. I, I see you on that. <laughs> All right, well, Lucas, we uh, we really appreciate your time. Congratulations on uh, on your success, and we wish you a lot of luck the, the rest of the way. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, go Gators. Thank you. 
And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow the Gators as they head to Music City to take on Vanderbilt on Saturday at noon on ESPN and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then come back next Thursday as we'll recap it all in a brand new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Nashville.